What comes to mind when I say somebody is humble? Uh, picture a humble person in your mind right now, okay? What are you thinking about? Is that person kind of quiet? Self-effacing. They don't dominate the room. They defer to other people. Not pretentious, not arrogant. What are you thinking about? Now, some of the descriptor I just used, that's what people think about when we talk about the word humble. And if you're thinking that, you're spot on. This is how Oxford English Dictionary defines humble, having a low estimate of one's importance, worthiness, or merits, and defines humility as having a lowly opinion of oneself. So a humble person don't have a high view of who they are, and that's why they're kind of quiet, because they don't think what they have to say is that important. They defer to other people because they don't trust their own opinions. And they don't want to draw attention to themselves because they don't think they're that interesting. So here's the second question for you. Do you want to be humble? Is that a life goal for you? I think for some of us who've been around churches for a while, this is a difficult question, right? Because I, we all know the Bible says you should be humble, right? Humility is a Christian virtue. So at the same time, we have this vision of what a humble person is. And I got to be honest with you, it's not that attractive. <laughs> I don't want to be that person, right? I'm just not that interested. So there's a basic problem. Well, maybe just my problem. Okay, <laughs> here's my problem. <laughs> the Bible says we should be humble, and I don't want to be. Today, we're going to talk about humility. And I remember two weeks ago, I came up here and I talked about love. And I said that the Bible talks about love and the culture talks about love, and they're not the same things. Well, today is the same idea for humility. The Bible talks about humility. The culture talks about humility. Not the same thing. Before I keep going, let me introduce myself. My name is Charles. I'm one of the pastors on the teaching team. Uh, to the Chinese speakers, to the Spanish speakers, and to the English speakers, welcome to Blackout Church. We're so very glad you're here. This is the fourth sermon in our 10-part series on Paul's letter to the church at Philippi. Paul founded the church at Philippi. He actually has extensive connection with them. He knows everybody at that church. They are his friends. They love each other. And so Paul writes this letter to express how much he loves them and to encourage them to love each other more and to love God more. This is a love letter. Today, we're jumping in at chapter 1, verse 27. If you have your Bible or your smart device, go to Philippians 1, verses 27. Paul says to the church of Philippi, hey, whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in the one spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. What's going on here? Well, verse 28 tells us, right? The church of Philippi, they're facing opposition. And we know about this opposition if you have read Acts chapter 16. This is where Paul was planting the church of Philippi. And in, in the process of doing that, he got himself arrested. Because the Christian faith, from the Philippians' perspective, the city of Philippi, is that that's a foreign faith. That's from Asia. That's a Jewish faith. It's a threat to the Roman tradition, Roman religion, Roman politics, Roman culture. So Philippi is not a good place for Christ followers. Paul leaves. The opposition continues. 
So they're facing opposition, and Paul knows all about it. So he tells them, hey, here's how you respond to opposition. You need to conduct yourself in a way that's worthy of the gospel of Christ. Now, what does that mean? What kind of conduct is worthy of the gospel of Christ? Well, Paul says that. He clarifies. He says, here's what you need to do. You need to stand firm in the one spirit and then striving together as one for the faith of the gospel. Stand firm in the one spirit, striving together as one. You're catching catching this thing, right? Be one. Be unified. Oh, also, uh, don't be scared. Unity without fear. That is the conduct that is worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, obvious question that comes to mind is, well, Paul, what do you mean by, what do you mean by unity, right? How are we supposed to achieve that? Obvious questions. But before we go there, Paul answers another question that is really more pressing on the mind of the Philippians. Okay, so let's say we're the Philippians, right? We're Philippians. And, and we're facing opposition. It's no fun at all. And Paul says, hey, during opposition, here's what you should do. You should do unity without fear. And our response is, uh, Paul, okay, so tell us, what does unity without fear do? Will that remove the opposition? Right? If we do unity without fear, does that mean that God's going to show up and do something amazing and all the people who oppose us are going to be, all become Jesus followers? Wouldn't that be great, right? Is that what's going to happen? What does unity without fear actually accomplish? Paul answers that question in the next verse. He says, unity without fear is a sign that they will be destroyed, but that you will be saved and that by God. For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him. Since you're going through the same struggle you saw I had and now hear that I still have. Paul says, unity without fear absolutely accomplishes something but perhaps not what you were hoping for. Look at verse 29. It has been granted to you. It's an honor and a privilege for you to go beyond faith in Jesus to suffering. It is a privilege and an honor for you to suffer for Jesus. Okay, now... This taps into the theology of suffering. And if we want to talk about suffering here in, in the theology of suffering in the New Testament, we'd be here all day. We have passages and passages of this. So let me give you four big ideas from kind of the a biblical theology of suffering. Um, big idea number one. We are not to interpret suffering as a punishment for sin. When you see somebody suffer, well, the one thing you must not do is go, oh, they sinned. God's judging them. The Bible is clear on that. Don't do that. Okay, because you have no idea what's happening there. So don't do that. Number two, we live in a broken world, a world that's been broken by human rebellion, which means there's inherently suffering built into this world. Okay, and that affects people in, in all kinds of ways. The amazing thing that God does is that he can use the suffering that is inherent to this broken world to do something in our lives, to transform us. God redeems what is broken and makes good out of it. That's this amazing thing that he's done. He's, he's able to do. Number three. We're talking about a particular type of suffering now. It's suffering for Jesus. Suffering for the sake of the gospel. And New Testament is just consistent on this one, folks. Suffering for Jesus is an honor. It's a privilege for Christ followers. Why? Because Jesus suffered. You get to be like Jesus. 
You get to be like the king. To be like the king is the highest calling, the highest honor. It is the greatest life possible. So Paul says to them, okay, you doing unity without fear will not remove the opposition. That's not going to happen. In fact, you've been given the privilege to suffer for Jesus. But what does unity without fear actually accomplish? Right? What's the point? Unity without fear is a sign that your people who oppose you will be destroyed and that you will be saved. This verse is absolutely critical. Okay? We, we need to dive in a little bit. Well, let's slow it down. Paul's talking about future destruction and salvation. Undoubtedly, he's talking about future judgment. That one day Jesus will return to this earth. And he will establish his reign on earth and there will be a day of judgment. And the people who oppose you, they will be destroyed and you will be saved. You will be vindicated. That is the future hope. That is our future hope. And yet Paul says, okay, we can know about that future vindication right now. There's a sign of it. There's an evidence of it that points to that future vindication. What is that sign? Your unity without fear. Your unity without fear in your community is a sign of your future vindication. What is Paul saying? Unity is supernatural. Unity is of God. When, when, it, when, it, when a church has unity, it's a clear sign that God is with that church. Do you understand? And that is because unity is not human. We are wired to separate. We are wired to break apart from other people. We're wired to join with those who are similar and separate from those who are different. We are inherently tribalistic. Just this past week, we had the horrific reminder from the Middle East just how tribal we really are. We are tribal. We are so broken. In our, in our country, I think we're more politically polarized than we have been maybe since the 1960s. Um, some of you may not know, I serve on the board of an organization called the National Association of Evangelicals, NAE. This organization represents over 40 evangelical denominations, uh, including our own, the EFCA, the Evangelical Free Church of America. And as part of the board, I attended a board meeting in Washington, D.C. last week, and I had the privilege to hear from a Representative Frank Wolf. He served in Congress from 1981 to 2015. And we were sitting there, he's just talking, he's reminiscing about his time in Congress back in the 80s how he came to Congress and was immediately plugged into Christian small groups. They hooked him up intentionally this way. Two Republican congresspersons, two Democratic congresspersons, four of them got together weekly to pray for each other, to read the Bible together, plan tr trips abroad together, got to know each other's families. That was going on in Congress. And Frank... It was so sad. He starts talking about how all of that is completely gone. It's not happening at all. And he says, it's inconceivable that it can still happen today. What he's getting at 
What he's getting at is, is what some of us who are old enough to remember is that our culture used to celebrate, used to value the idea that we meet each other halfway, that we actually compromised, that that was actually a good thing, that we had the ability to disagree with people and have a warm relationship with them. Today, compromise is a dirty word. We talk to and we listen to people who agree with us. How are we able to do that, you say? Technology. With a few keystrokes, we're able to connect with only people who agree with us and allows us to ignore people right around us and people in our family, people in our workplace, people in our school. We ignore people who disagree. And as we get used to this way of life, we lose that ability, that practice to cross differences. And why would you do the hard work of building bridges across differences anyway? It's so easy to connect with just people who accept you the way you are. This is our cultural moment, folks. Our culture is doing unity through uniformity. We are in the process of sorting ourselves into like-minded groups of people by where you live, by where you work, by what media you consume, and even by what church you attend. Sociologists tell us that it used to be people chose churches based on denomination, based on theology, based on style of worship or style of preaching. Today, it's politics. Increasingly, people are choosing churches that align with them politically. Look, I can stand up here and talk about the opposition that we face as American Christians. Oh yeah, without a doubt, over the past few decades, our culture has become increasingly less hospitable to Christ followers. But I don't think that's our biggest problem. No, one of the biggest threats is facing our church today is that we have allowed the political tribalism of our culture to infiltrate into our churches. Our churches are divided politically. What divides our culture now divides our churches. Tell me, how does that reveal God? How do we say, hey, God is with us? We have the gospel. We have the truth. We really, really believe it. Look, I believe the gospel is the truth, but yelling it as loudly as possible does not reveal God. It does not reveal our vindication. You know why? Because it is our unity that reveals God. It is our unity that reveals our vindication. Our unity across differences, working together in one spirit for the sake of the gospel. That unity that unity that is supernatural, that unity that is from God, that unity that reveals God to the world. I am so proud of the fact that we have Republicans and Democrats in this church. We have them right here, together in one community. I'm so proud of the fact that some of you, you disagree with me, and instead of walking away, what do you do? You write me, and we get together and we talk. And after we talk, we still disagree, but what happens? You're my brothers and my sisters. <laughs> I love you and I know you love me. And I'm so proud of the fact that you're a part of our church. I'm so glad. And we want more of that. We need more of that because it is our unity across differences that reveals God to the world. Unity without fear in the face of opposition.
Now, obvious question. How do we get to this unity? And what does this unity actually look like? Paul goes on. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. Now, a key word dominates this passage, okay? And you can find that in verse 2. Um, the word minded there, right? The, the Greek is actually a verb, it's phreneo. Same here, one mind, the same thing here. The Greek under, underneath there is actually a verb, phreneo. And they jump down to verse 5, translate mindset. The Greek word there is phreneo, okay? That's the verb that, that dominates this passage. Now, now, when we read this in English, Okay, we, we, we see like-minded, we see one mind, we see same mindset. It's very easy to come to the conclusion that, oh, what Paul talk, is talking about is everybody in the church think exactly the same way about everything. That's how you get unity. Well, that is not what phreneo means in this passage. Phreneo in this passage means to develop an attitude based on careful thought, to develop an attitude based on careful thought. It means to do some thinking, right? You're thinking about things, you're processing, you're learning stuff. And then what do you do? You're like, oh, because of all that thought, I should have a particular attitude, a particular posture. So let me be clear. Paul is not saying that, hey, Philippian church, you need to have, you need to have unity by believing, thinking the same way about everything. Not at all. In fact, later on in Philippians, Paul is going to say, oh, you might disagree on this. That's okay. He'll actually say that. No. So Paul says, here's what I want you to be unified in. I want you to have the same attitude, the same posture. And what is that attitude? Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility... Value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. This is where Paul defines humility. What is humility? Value others above yourself, pursue the interests of others, not your own. That's humility. And Paul says, this is where unity comes from. Unity flows from humility. Not through uniformity, not through believing the same thing. No, 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 not at all. No, no, no. It comes from everybody unified in having this particular attitude. I, I disagree with you. I have my interests, you have your interests, and I'm going to seek your interests, and you're going to seek mine. That's unity. Now let's just pause here for a sec, because I maybe some of you are thinking... You know, what I was thinking when I read this part, this is not possible. <laughs> this is pie in the sky. I mean, look, go back to that verse. Go back to that verse. Look at this part. Um, verse, verse three. Look, look at this thing. It says, okay, look to the interests of the others. Okay, we got that. I mean, we talked about love a couple weeks ago, right? Love is to, to seek the good of the other. 
I think I can do that. I can seek what's good for other people. But look what it says. It says this part. Don't look to your own interests. What? I don't think that's possible. Paul, are you being serious? Not possible. Not going to happen. It's a good question, right? How can we possibly do this? I don't see people doing this. So Paul says, well, there was this one guy who pulled it off. Maybe you heard of him. His name is Jesus Christ. He is humble. And you need to learn humility from him. And so this is where we actually need to learn some theology. We need to learn some theology. We need to learn who Jesus is. How is he humble so that we can learn to be humble? Okay, so last, two weeks ago, I said you need knowledge in order to love properly. Today, you need theology in order to be humble properly. Okay, so now we're going to jump to one of, the, one, of the, one of the most powerful, one of the most amazing passages, not just in Philippians, but really in all of the Bible. We're, we're going to get to this passage. Um, it starts with verse 5. Paul says, In your relationship with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. Who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Somebody say amen. Amen. This is an amazing passage, absolutely amazing passage. And, And we can spend a whole semester talking through all the theological points raised in this passage, right? I mean, we can talk Christology, the nature of Jesus, right? And so you'll see, he, he, has, he has a God's nature. What does that mean? He has equality with God. And then we get into the teaching on kenosis, from the Greek word kanao, meaning to empty himself. Next, next slide, please. Make himself nothing, to empty himself, right? What does that mean? What does that mean for Jesus to empty himself? What does that say about Jesus' time on earth? Did he retain omniscience, even as a baby? Then then there's a whole debate between like the monophysites and the diophysites, right? It's like, it's it's the nature of God, Jesus. How does Jesus have God's nature or or, human nature or, or God nature, right? So how can he be both God and human at the same time? And, And then we get into obedience. Jesus obeyed the Father, presumably, um, which gets us into the inner workings of the Trinity, right? And then we have the last part, we have eschatology, which is really, it just means the study of last things, the future, right? Eschatos is Greek for for last. So what is God's plan for for the whole story? Oh, he, he wants every, every knee to, to bow before Jesus, not just on earth, but also in heaven and under the earth. Whoa, complete exaltation. How is this going to happen? Is this literal? Is this physical? When is it going to happen? Right. All kinds of theology here, folks. We can do theology for the rest of our time together, but we're not going to do that. You know why? Because that's not why Paul wrote this passage. 
Paul did not write this passage to teach abstract propositions about Christology, Trinity, or eschatology. No, he wrote this passage to do one thing, teach you how to be humble. Yeah, that's how it fits into the story. He says, learning about Christology, learning the nature of Jesus, learning that he is a member of the Trinity, learning how he emptied himself, learning how, how he became human, learning how he died on the cross and he resurrected in the future coming of the eternal kingdom, all of that helps you become humble. The heart of Christian doctrine is the basis for your humility. <laughs> theology is for transformation, okay? Studying theology, when you study theology, and I said when, not if, when you study theology, you're supposed to become humble. If you don't, you're doing it wrong. So Paul says, Jesus is humble. which according to Oxford English Dictionary, means that Jesus has a low estimate of his importance, worthiness, or merits. Is that what you know of Jesus? The answer is no. Just shake your head. <laughs> no. Does Jesus have a low opinion of himself? No. Right? No. Jesus thinks he is God. He has a literal Messiah complex. He thinks he's God's gift to humanity. Jesus doesn't quiet, stay quiet. He speaks up. Jesus doesn't defer to other people. He lays out the right path forward. Jesus attracts attention. He wants all of humanity to be paying attention to him. And yet, the Bible says Jesus is humble, which tells us that the Bible's understanding of humility is completely different from culture's understanding of humility. Let's start with this. Biblical humility is not based on low self-esteem. It's not smart people saying they're stupid or you know, beautiful people saying they're ugly. Not at all. So how is Jesus humble? Well, let's go back to that passage. How does Paul describe Jesus? What is Jesus' mindset, right? It starts with this. Paul begins with, Jesus' understanding of, of his nature. He has God's nature, and he also has a status of being equal with God. And then what how does it end? It ends with absolute exaltation. Absolute exaltation. And his superiority and lordship over all of the cosmos, all of the universe. That's Jesus. Do you understand? And Paul says, look, Paul says, look, have the same mindset as Jesus. Have the same mindset as Jesus. What kind of mindset does Jesus have? Jesus says, I am God. I'm a member of the Trinity. I have equal status with God, but I'm not going to use that status for my own advantage, for my own benefit. I'm going to lose the glory, lose the honor, the trappings of being God, and I'm going to become a human being. I'm going to live this life and I'm going to draw people to myself and I'm going to value them more than myself. I'm going to put their interests above my own to the extent that I will die for them. I will die on the cross for them. And then I resurrect 
I ascend into heaven, and there is that future vindication and exaltation that is coming. That is Jesus' humility. Do you understand? Jesus' humility is not based on low self-esteem. Jesus' humility is based on his understanding of himself as the son of God and his future vindication and exaltation over all the universe. Unlike what our culture says, it is Jesus' high view of himself that gives him the capacity to put others above himself. Allows him to value himself, value others above himself. Allowed him to, to focus on the interests of others instead of his own. You see, Jesus is full and overflowing. His humility flows from his fullness. Okay. I think every one of you is thinking the same objection right now. Well, maybe not everyone, but most everybody's thinking exactly the same objection. But hey, Paul, I'm not Jesus. <laughs> Paul, I'm, I don't have God's nature. I'm not equal with God. I did not pre-exist before my conception in my mother's womb. So what are you talking about, Paul? Come on. How am I supposed to be humble like Jesus? Now, Paul actually doesn't answer the question here in Philippians. I suspect it's because the Philippians actually know the answer. But he does discuss this in, in another, another book in Romans. And, and, and his answer is roughly this. You really need to know who you are. Romans 8. For those who are led by the Spirit of God, by the way, that's all Christ followers, okay? Every one of you. For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. The spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the spirit you receive brought about your adoption to sonship and daughtership. And by him, we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. What is Paul saying? He's saying, look, all of your Christ followers, you put your faith in Jesus on the cross, you united with Jesus, which means you have the spirit of Jesus in you. And if you have the spirit of Jesus in you, the spirit of Jesus cries out to the father, hey, daddy, guess what? That makes us all children. We are adopted. That makes Jesus the firstborn and we're the brothers and sisters of Jesus. I know some of you are freaking out right now. You are brothers and sisters of Jesus, which means we are Exalted, semi-divine beings. Exalted, semi-divine beings. And what is our future? Verse 17. Now, if we're children, <laughs> then we're heirs. Heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his suffering, in order that we may also share in his glory. We will share in the glory of Jesus, the future vindication and exaltation. The New Testament is filled with passages talking about how the church, Christ followers, are going to rule the universe along with Jesus. Look, Blackhawk, okay? God's holy people here in Madison, do you know who you are? 
Do you know that you have a new status, that you have a new nature, and you have a future glory? It is on these things that Jesus' humility is founded. And Paul says, it is the same for us. Our humility is founded on the same thing. But here's the problem. We don't really believe this. I mean, we say it, right? We, we say, oh yeah, we read, the, we read the Bible. We're reading the Bible. We'll sing about it. Oh, we're children of God. We, 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 we say all this. We mentally assent to it. But deep down, like, do you really feel it? Do you experience it? I'm the son of God. I'm the daughter of God. I'm semi-divine. Do you think that way? Do you feel that way? Do you act like that? No. And because we don't, we're not full and overflowing. We are empty and hungering for more. Back in Vancouver, Serena used to make this fabulous pasta salad. Oh, so good. She, she, she lost the recipe uh, um, during the move. And, and ever since then, she tried to recreate it. It's never tasted the same. So, okay. But back in Vancouver, she, uh, she used to make this pasta salad, you know, for like potlucks, like, you know, people's, you know, people's houses or the church. And so we, so we would go to these potlucks. And I, I love this pasta salad, right? So we would go to these potlucks and, um, and I'm watching other people eat my pasta salad. You understand what I'm saying, right? If everybody got a bite, then there'd be none left to take home. So people would approach the pasta salad, I would give them a dirty look. <laughs> and, and when that didn't work, I would actually kind of maneuver myself, position myself in front of the food, right in front of the pasta salad. So people want to get it, they have to reach around me to get it. You totally understand, right? You get it. This is what you would do, right? Okay, nod your head. Yes, Charles. Yes, Charles. Okay, good. See, for some inexplicable reason, Serena found that kind of annoying. <laughs> I don't know why. So, so, so one time before potluck, she led me to the fridge. She opened it up, and inside was this big bowl of pasta salad. And she said, I made you extras. That's all she said. That's all she said. And then we went off to the potluck. And I was relaxed. <laughs> I was having a good time. And, and people were like going, going through the line. And I'm like, hey, that's, that's Serena's pasta salad. It's really, really good. You should try it. And I actually felt completely honest about saying that. I was in earnest. Why? Because I have my pasta salad at home in my fridge. You see, here's the problem. We are empty people. We're empty people and we're hungry for more. Love, appreciation, status, wealth, power, vindication. Whatever it is that you're hungering for that keeps you working feverishly during the day and keep you tossing and turning at night. We are empty and hungry. And hungry people, empty people, cannot put the interests of others above ourselves. We can't do it. So God comes along. And God says, look, I got your pasta salad in the fridge already, all right? I, it's way better than pasta salad. God said, I, I have adopted you as my son, as my daughter. 
I have made you the same status as the child of God. You are a younger sibling of Jesus. I have changed your nature. I have poured my Holy Spirit into you. You are an exalted semi-divine being. And I have made you co-heirs with Jesus. You have a glorious eternal future. Do you know that? Not here, here. You need to know this, God says, because I want you to be full and overflowing. Humility. True biblical humility, not not false humility, not not low self-esteem disguised as humility. True humility depends on our embrace of our identity in Christ, our new nature, our new status, our future, glorious future. That's where humility comes from. All right. Just final thoughts. How do we become humble? Well, you need to study some theology, no doubt about that. But there's a couple other things that are quite important and that Bible, Paul mentions. And I, want you to, I just want to put it up there to the sake of completeness. If you look at verse one in chapter two, Paul says, therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being united in your humility. Verse one is not a throwaway verse. Paul's actually laying out conditions for humility, right? Do you experience encouragement from being united with Jesus? Do you feel it? Do you experience it? Do do you experience comfort from Jesus' love? Do you have common sharing in the spirit with the church family? Do you feel tenderness and compassion toward people in the church family or experience tenderness and compassion from people in the church family? These two, that's deepening relationship with God. And these two down here, deeper relationship with God's people, with the church family. So if you look at the whole, whole, whole thing, this is what the passage is getting at, what Paul's passage is getting at. He says, look, if we have deepening relationship with God and with each other, throw in a little humility, I mean, throw in a little theology. And what happens is we start to figure out who we are. We start to embrace our new identity, having our, our new nature, our new status, our glorious future. And when we do that, we become full and overflowing. We gain the capacity to value others above ourselves and to put the interests of others above our own. And when you have a whole bunch of people doing this at a church, oh baby, you get the unity that goes across differences. You get the unity that reveals God, the one that's supernatural, that smells like Jesus. Let me pray for us. Father, we, uh, <laughs> we stand in awe, or we are just in awe of what Jesus did and what, what he's able to accomplish for being able to throw away the status of being God for our sake and all the trappings of that for our sake. But then we realize it's because he is God that he's able to do this and that you've given us the same gift, the same calling. You have adopted us as sons and daughters and given us a promise of a glorious future so that we can become full. 
and overflow. We pray that you help us with that, that we experience deeper relationship with you, deeper relationship with others, that we would truly embrace our identity, and that we become humble, true humility. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.